0: Well, good morning, Mission View family. It's good to be here. I want you to know that I brought some of my preschool play blocks uh, that I had when I was in preschool. I think these things have been around forever. Um, I want to challenge you on something that's really important. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6, and the title of our message is The Obstacles of the Heart. But I want to Go back in time for a minute. Now I want you to know I had to dust off the archives of my memory because uh, what I'm giving you is about 48 years ago, and it's the best that I can recall. But I I can remember growing up in uh, in church, and I can remember wanting to go to church to play with my friends in the preschool. And I knew as soon as I got to the end of the hall, the, the doorway on the right, in there were all of these building blocks. Now these building blocks were awesome as a preschooler because I could take and I could put one block upon another, and then before long, I had a wall that just seemed like it towered a mile high over me. Now from that's from my preschool world view at that point. Now. There were other kids that liked to play with these blocks as well. And one of the kids that I believe that was in my grade, and I'm almost certain was in there playing with at the same time, was a guy named Mark Hull. Now, Mark Hull was a sturdy two-and-a-half-year-old, okay? He was just this sturdy kid, and he had his own wall that he wanted to build. And there were times that we would play nice together, but there was times that he would want to steal my blocks, And so there would be this little tug of war. And even at times, he would plow through my wall. Now, you got to understand, the worst of humanity came out in me because you don't mess with my block or my wall. And so I would defend the honor of my fortress with all of my being. And, of course, there was a typical squabble between kids. Now, I wanted to protect my wall because it was my wall... And even more than that, I, I wanted it to last. Yes. <laughs> I wanted it to last. And, you know, it made me think as I was uh, thinking about that story, I think there's something in the DNA of every person that was even intrinsically instilled with me as a kid that I wanted to do something that would last, that would bi- that something I would build, something that I would be a part of. And I believe that God has put that within us, but no longer do I want infantile things. I actually want to build into lives, and I want to do something that will make a difference in a person. And as I'm 50 years of age now, and about half of my life is over, I know I'm being very optimistic there, I know that I don't want to build a name for myself. My time will go away just like that, and I want to know that what I've done will leave a mark for the name of God long after I'm gone. How about you? Do you want to build something that will last? I had a Sunday school teacher once uh, when I was in high school. She said, Steve, as I was considering my career and what I wanted to do with my life, she said, Steve, I want to encourage you to do two things. She says, I want to encourage you to build into the lives of people the souls of men because there are only two things that will that will last after it's all said and done it will be the souls of men and it will be the word of God and so I want you to make sure that you're making such an investment into the souls of men and into the word of God And I've never forgotten that wisdom because I think it's so profound and it's so important in terms of what I'm building that will last way beyond me. As I look at the scriptures, I look at like Ephesians 2.20, where it says that my life is being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Now, what that tells me is that these are the words of the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus. I'm to build my life on the Word of God. I'm not going to do it on my own principles, my, my, my own thinking. It will always take me to the wrong places. It will always lead me down the wrong path. But if I build it upon God's Word, then there's something solid. But I'm also told, we're also told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that we, in this building process, are living stones. With Christ being the, the megastone, the cornerstone, we are also, in like manner, living stones, not dead, living stones, that are being built into a holy house, a spiritual temple of God. And it's so cool to know that if I reach out and I share the love of God with somebody and that person comes and gives their life to Christ, then they, are, they, are, they join in the mission. They become a living stone as well. And we are gradually being built up. And in this room are a whole bunch of living stones that are being built up into this spiritual temple. And what First Peter tells us is that we are being built up so that we will this do this. So that we will offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, what that tells us is that God also has it in his DNA to build something that lasts. And you and I are the material he's using. He's building something through us. And through us, he wants there to be a sacrifice of praise that's given up To God. See, as living stones, God's expectation on you and me as believers in Christ is that we will continually present ourselves up to Him. In other words, God has this expectation He wants us to work in this life with the perspective that everything we do matters. With everything, everything we will do will ultimately give praise and glory and honor to Him. Is that our perspective? See, here's the question I want us to think as a Mission View family. I want you to answer this question What are you building that will outlast you? What are you building that will outlast you? Are you investing into the souls of men? Are you investing into the Word of God? Because I believe that's exactly what God wants. And I can hear someone saying, Well, Steve, how do I do that? How do I legitimately make an investment into the souls of men? Well, my friends, that's why we're in the book of Mark, because we're learning from the master. We're learning from the Master. We're learning as the disciples learned right alongside of Christ in this journey and discovering the Son of Man. We are discovering the Son of Man, and we are learning what it means to follow and to build into the lives and the souls of individuals. And if we really take note of Christ, if we really take note of what He does, we will learn how to be better parents. I guarantee it. We will learn how to reach our core, our circle of responsibility, the people that are around us that don't know Christ. We will learn what that is all about. We will learn how to have influence if we listen. Now, here's the answer to the question. How do we build into the lives of people? In simplicity, as we've seen Christ so far, it's building into people. That's the simple answer. Now, the difficult answer is that people... Are difficult. People are hard-hearted at times. People are rebellious. People have pride. The only problem with this world is people, right? The only problem with that coworker I have is that they are a person and they have problems. We don't. They do. We have problems. And what God has to deal with first and foremost, the starting point, the foundation. It's right here. It's the heart. You know, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And when I see Jesus ministering with people, what I see is the battle of the heart. And last week we saw a demon-possessed man. We saw a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. We saw a father that got his daughter back from the dead. And we saw the heart. We saw a heart that was yielded. Today, we're going to continue on and we're going to look at the obstacles of the heart in Mark 6. Now, as we continue in this journey, we don't have time to go over everything in Mark chapter 6. So let me give you a few summary points of some of the passages that we're not going to cover. In the very first part of Mark 6, you're going to see Jesus going into his hometown. In the first few verses, and it says in that passage that he is rejected by his own hometown. It says the prophet's not received in his own hometown. He's rejected by his own family again. Now if you go and you say, well, why, why is that? It's obstacles of the heart. They had a lack of faith. There was an obstacle of the heart. Now, if you go to the very end of the chapter, you see the disciples are out in a boat, and a storm comes, and this is just after Jesus had fed 5,000 people, and he'd done so many miracles, and they're out there, and it says that they had a hardness of heart. They just didn't understand all the power of God. It was like God is right before them, but there's some kind of veil that they're not completely understanding, and what was the problem? It was the heart hardness of the heart and now the part that we're going to focus on today is the middle of this uh, chapter where he's going to talk about herod you say well that's strange that just right here middle of of chapter six six they put in a, a story about herod well i believe it's because he had a heart problem and mark is teaching us about the obstacles of the heart So we're going to do a case study today of who this person was, his obstacles, and then we're going to step back and say, what do we learn from that, and how do we use this in order for us to build into those around us? So let's start off in chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus has just sent out his disciples two by two, and this is what they were to do. Verse 12, it says, So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. Now, you remember what that word repent means? It was a military command. That means you're going your own direction. You're going to this cliff. It's, it's a place of destruction. It's a place that's going to take you. You think it's good, but it's really going to be a bad place in the end. So what I want you to do is I want you to listen to me. This is God speaking. You are to repent. You are to turn from that direction, and you are to listen to me. You are to yield yourself to me, and you're to go my direction. So that's repent. It's an about-face. Go in one direction, a wrong direction, and an about-face turn. This was the message of all the disciples going out and preaching. They're preaching, repent, 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 repent to a people that needed to repent. Notice what else happened. In verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So this ministry is going on all around the Galilean territory, and it is raising quite a ruckus of people. It's possibly a very good ruckus, and for some people it was a negative. But notice what happens. It reaches the ears of somebody. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers were at work in him. But others said uh, he's Elijah, and others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. When, but when Herod heard of it, he said, Jesus John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now take note of what has happened here. This Herod, there, by the way, there are many Herods in the territory. A, it's a dynasty family. And this Herod, Herod Antipas, was given a district. All the Herods were given different districts. And this Herod, Herod Antipas, was given the district of Galilee. You'll see him again when Jesus is on trial because he is sent back to his home district for part of the trial. Of course, he does nothing and sends him back to Jerusalem. But this Herod is significant there. This is also the Herod, if you go back to chapter 1, that put John the Baptist into jail. Now we're going to find out what in the world happened because this is a Herod that has also beheaded John the Baptist since he put him in jail. And we see this account right here. Now, Herod has John the Baptist gone. I will tell you this, John was a problem to Herod. Because he kept saying, repent, repent, you're going the wrong way, Herod, you're going the wrong way. And he didn't really want to hear it. And now all of a sudden, there's a resurgence of John come back. It's like Jesus was the embodiment of this risen voice of conviction. And this didn't really please Herod because he's like, I took care of this problem. This problem was done with, and now all of a sudden it is back, and he has a lot of cronies. He has a lot of people that are giving this message all over, and this is becoming like a little wildfire. What is going on? Now, what was going through Herod's heart? Well, I think there were many obstacles here. And we're going to learn this in this passage. The first thing I want you to see that was the problem of Herod's heart was that he just refused to listen. He refused to listen. Take a look at verse 18. When John was alive, this is what John used to say to Herod. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now I want you to understand what was happening here. Herod had married a a, a woman named Herodias. Herodias was a player. She was long before the desperate housewives of Atlanta. Long before the desperate housewives of Orange County, there was the desperate housewives in the political system of Galilee. And Herodias was right in the center of it, and she was playing one brother against another. She had been married to a guy named Philip, who was a Herod, and he was a wimp. I'm going to tell you, he was just a cowardly wimp of a guy. But this Herod Antipas, he had potential. It was his brother-in-law, and so she shacks up. With him. And John the Baptist comes along and says, No, 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 this should not be. You should not have your brother's wife. This is adultery. Now, there was one other little twist to this, and that is Herodias was also Herod Antipas's niece. So that made this incest as well. So this was an ancestral, adulterous relationship. No wonder John was trying to speak. Truth to the political leader. Now, I think you know how well political leaders deal with truth. Not too well. And so here we have it. This voice has come back, and Herod doesn't like it. This was enough to bring about great concern for Herod. Why? Because he had heard the message before. He had been intrigued with John. He was intrigued with the message but yet he refuse to listen and to repent. In verse 16, when it says, But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has, has been raised. Now, we don't see it, but there is a tense in the original language that's an emphatic tense indicating worry. There was a concern by, by Herod that this John was back. And I can just see the replay in Herod's mind of the platter coming out with John's head on it and blood dripping over and how he had been duped in that situation and how he was responsible, he was foolish, he was impulsive, and he felt guilty. And yet Herod wouldn't listen. Here's the other problem with his heart. His heart not only would not listen, but it led him to do things that he really didn't want to do. It led him to arrest this John. Take a look at verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. He didn't want to, but he had to do it for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. of what is happening right here. What is happening here is that he actually likes this John. There's something that intrigues him. See, I believe Herod had John put into prison because of his wife. Now the passage says that he was nursing a grudge, and the, actually the phrase is that he had a grudge, and it's too gentle in the original language. It really means this. It means to be enraged with and to set oneself against. Now you add the fact that it is given in the imperfect tense, meaning Herodias, uh, Herodias continue With fury, never giving up, wanting with bitterness in her heart to have John put to death. She was a relentless woman. She was a woman who had something in her mind, and she would not give up until it happened. I am so glad women aren't like that today. I'm so glad. She in no way saw John the Baptist as a man of God. You know what she saw him as? She saw him as a fruit fly. You know, those fruit flies, you just buzz around your ears, you just swat at them, you just want to squash them. And that's exactly what she wanted. She wanted him squashed. But here was Herod's problem. Herod was in a pickle, because on one hand, Herodias wanted him dead. On the other hand, the people in his district considered John the Baptist a prophet. They considered him a man to be revered, and he feared a revolt. On top of this, he had a respect and intrigue for him because he liked to listen to him. So what was the solution to the problem? Well, he had a brilliant solution. I'll put him in prison. I'll just pacify Herodias. I won't kill him, but I'll just put him in prison. I'll just take one step that direction. One step. It's not exactly the direction I want to go, but it's what I have to do. It's a necessary evil that I have to participate in. And I'll go that direction. And everything will be okay. The only problem is, sin always goes further than we want it to go, doesn't it? This is what happened. His heart was forced to not only not listen, not only to put a man in prison, but he was also forced to kill the man. Take a look at what happens in verse 21. But an opportunity came. Now the phrase "opportunity" could also be translated a strategic day. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in, for for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, "Ask me for whatever you wish; I will give it to you." And he vowed to her, whatever you ask for me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guest. He did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to his mother, her mother. Now notice the steps that Herodias had taken on this strategic day. Step one was throw a kickin' birthday party for, with lots of noble guests so that Herod would not want to lose face with this crowd. Notice who was on the guest list. There was high officials, meaning they were lords. These were people with lots and lots of money. There was also military commanders. These weren't just the low-ranking soldiers. No, no, no. These were the veterans. These were the guys that had years of experience who were war veterans and heroes. And then there was leading men which is those that were people that were over territories. In other words, government officials. So this woman covered all sides. She made sure the money sector was there. She made sure that the uh, the military sector was there, the political sector was there. From Herod's perspective, this would be a day that would go in defeating his ego. Look at all these people, man, here for me. This is going to be an awesome time. So here's Herod with all the boys, all these guys just having a great time. So step two, throw in booze and sensuality to please Herod and the boys. Now this situation really shows how low Herodias was, Herodias was willing to go in order to murder John. She had her own daughter, Salome, which was also Herod's stepdaughter. Uh, he took, she took her own daughter to be a stripper for the boys. See, the word dance that's used here indicates that she performed a sexual dance for the men. This was typically done by a woman of loose moral standards, standards that was kind of low on the, on the society pole in order for her to make a living. Now, this was not the case for, for this girl because she was in the family she was in the family of wealth. she was in the family of power. she didn't have to do this. No, what this shows is the depth of depravity that is being demonstrated here. Mama made her own daughter like a harlot in order to get what she wanted. And the immoral spectacle catered to the fleshly nature of these drunken men. So Herod, with an oath, in the in the in the heat of the moment, in the excitement of that time, he's like, "Bravo, bravo, girl, bravo! Whatever you want, half of my kingdom." And I could see the guys like, "Wow, man, Herod, way to go, man! That is impressive. I can't believe you offered that." And now it's time for the trap to be triggered. Herod had blindly walked into the trap, and Herodias gladly pulled the trigger through her daughter and asked for his head on the platter. Men, why is it so? Why is it that we are so easily led astray by sex? Why is that? We have to guard our hearts. Proverbs 7 is almost like a script out of Hollywood of the seductive woman and how a man is led just down that path. A path of pornography. A path of adultery. A path of sexual sins that just may go on in the mind. Why is it? It's a problem of the heart. What Hollywood doesn't produce is the end of Proverbs 7. Listen to this. All at once, he follows her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into the noose until an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life little knowing you see Herod was a very lost man with a very big heart problem and he found himself in the the place that a lot of people find themselves today caught now in this particular situation it didn't cost him his life it ended up costing John the Baptist his life it didn't take long for the little girl to return to her mother from her mother to to Herod to say, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on the platter. Can you imagine the emotional hairpin turn of Herod right at that moment? You can almost almost picture Herod's bravado sink deep within him as he hears the request. He went from elation and arousal to shock and awe in his own mind. He was duped and he couldn't do anything about it because his honor was on the line he was a fool he was a fool you know Herod didn't listen to the voice of conviction by John he didn't listen to the voice of conviction by Jesus and what history tells us is that Herod's life ended miserably He would eventually be banished by his own family to a place called Gaul, and he would die a very lonely person. Why would he not humble himself before God? Why wouldn't he do that? Because the pride of the heart is a very powerful force, and it becomes the biggest obstacle of the heart. So what about the risen voice of conviction for us? How do we learn from this? Here's the first thing that we learn. We learn that we build on a foundation. And the very, very basic foundation starts with humility, it starts with being broken before God, it starts with every single person coming to a place of saying, I need a Savior. I need a Savior in my life. I need the Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, was buried, and rose again. That is the foundational point in our life. Now, I know many people in this room, you've come to that place where you have yielded your life to Christ. But there may be some that this is new to you. And please understand, it is the foundation. It's not through our accomplishments. It's not through us being good. It's not through us saying, man, I've done this and this and this. I used to think it was how good I would be that qualified me for God. And really, it's how bad I am in me recognizing how bad I am that qualifies me before God. God says, humble yourself. Show your need for me said, I believe Herod is a picture of a lot of people today, maybe even some in this room. I believe Herod came to a clear understanding that his life was outside the boundaries of God. God had created him. He created him to have intimacy, but he lived his life without reference to God, and that was the travesty. Why didn't he listen? Why? Because of the obstacle of his heart. In Herod's case, there's no evidence that he ever repented. He never came to that place of humility, of bowing before Him. And you know what? That's fine. That's Herod's choice. That's actually our choice. We get to choose whether we humble ourselves before God or don't. Here's what we don't get to choose we don't get to choose the outcome of our decision. We don't get to choose our consequences. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says this, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So my question today on the foundational level is, have you repented before God? Have you asked Christ to be your Savior? It comes by simply saying, I believe in you. I believe in what you've done and I need you take my sin forgive me of my sin i want that there may be some that are believers but you've been kind of holding on to this little secret compartment of your life there's been this secret world in your own mind or in in the workplace or 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 somewhere where you think nobody knows i want you to know god knows he understands this and what god wants is for us to repent In a little bit, in about five minutes, we're going to be doing communion. I want our hearts to be right before God. Uh, I have just a few more things to say, and then Josh is going to be playing just real quietly for a time of reflection. And I hope that we will deal with our own need for repentance. But let me go beyond just that. On the foundation of repentance, what do we learn from Christ? What we learn from Christ is this. Christ was, had a personal responsibility as he worked with individuals. Do you notice as he continues on, as we observe his life, he continues on and he works with people. He is tenacious with individuals. He continues even though people don't understand, even though his disciples are hard-hearted, he doesn't give up on them. And I think there's a lesson that we learn as we build that we have a responsibility to continue on to build and to be tenacious and to work with people and realize people are hard. It's difficult. It's, it's not an easy thing. Look at this passage. James 5.20 says this. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul, his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's tenacious work. Jude 22 says this, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy. That's tenacious work. 1 Corinthians 9, To the weak I become the weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that all, by all possible means I might win some. That's tenacious work. We have a construction project going all over at the Hoover District. i got to tell you, it's a pain in the butt. I mean Maple Street has been torn up forever. And the parking lot has been torn up and it is but I in order to get from where we were to where we need to be there has to be inconvenience. My friends, we learn from that as a church. As Mission View Church, we have to be tenacious. We have to be tenacious in our work in a community. It will not happen overnight. We need to love people. We need to continue on people. We need to reach out and continue to pray. It doesn't happen instantaneously. God says, be tenacious. And here's the final thing, and I'll close with this. I believe what God wants is for us to make a personal investment. I ask you the question at the very beginning, what are you building that will outlast you? I want you to think about that. When Jesus... Builds Even after talking about Herod, he goes on and feeds 5,000 people, 5,000 men and their families, so it was quite a large crowd. And you know why he does it? The passage says this. It says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And see, what I learn about that is in this building process, he uses hands and he uses feet to do it. He uses his own hands and he uses his own feet and he uses his disciples' hands and feet to reach out to the people that were around him. It took flesh and blood. It took time. It took somebody being out there where people were to feed them. And after his death, burial, and resurrection, he commissions us and he gives a responsibility to us. And he says, okay, I want you to be my hands. I want you to be my feet. This is going to take more time from you. Your responsibility is going to have to be seen in a daily basis. And this is what I want you to do. I want you, according to Isaiah, I want you to do away with the yoke of oppression. I want you to spend yourself on behalf of the hungry. I want you to satisfy the needs of the oppressed. And I want you to be a light that rises in the darkness. Because we have a world where there are those that are hungry, where there are those that are homeless. There are those children that have been sexually exploited. And the list goes on. We live in a very hurting world. And what God's arrangement is, is for you and I to be his agents of mercy and grace to this world. So what work will you engage in that will make such an investment? Let me practically challenge your community groups. For community groups, go feed the hungry. Participate in our, in our partner ministry, uh, a Refuge of Hope. Participate. You'll notice on these blocks over here, there's all kinds of pictures. They're pictures of people. That's the kind of thing that we're building. We see hammer... There's a hammer and nails over there. There's a group called Hammers and Nails, and they go in and they help those that are homeless or people that have poor homes and they, they need help with them. Maybe your community group or your family would help with someone with hammer and nails. Maybe you would adopt a child out of the sex trade. You'll see pictures of children on on those boxes. Some of them are the very children... Are the kind of children that many of you have adopted. I'm getting ready to leave this Thursday for Cambodia. I'm going to be sent out from you guys as a representative. I'll spend some time with Jen Srell, our missionary in Cambodia, do some planning with Remember New. I'm on that board. And then I'm going to go up to Thailand to view our home, our home. This will be our maiden voyage. I'm preparing the way for you guys, for those that would go next year. But there's some more people that need to be a part somehow. Maybe you would be the hands and feet of Christ simply to your neighbor by having them over for dinner. Maybe you would gather a group of people around you just to pray for the needs that God puts upon your heart. I don't know how, but I know this. As I look at the ministry of Christ, he wants repentance in people. He wants responsibility to be held by us. And he wants us to be the hands and feet of Christ. And here's what I know for certain in the process, it won't be easy because we'll always have the obstacle of the heart, always. But I'm so glad that the sweet love of God is what reached my heart. And I know for a lot of you, knowing your story, it was a sweet love of God that touched your heart. And maybe right now, during this time of silence as we prepare for communion, you would just reflect on that sweet love of God. You might be hurting right now. I don't know what it is. There might be circumstances in your life that nobody in here knows. But here's what I know God knows. He cares. And right now, he wants to minister to your heart.